Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Jordana Osban, here with my friend in Chavruta, Ann Gordon. Our daf today, Masachat Yoma, daf Yud Gimel, page 13. Well, this was kind of a head-spinning daf. Um, if you haven't read it yet, you'll see. And really tries to go through this whole issue of, you know, sort of having the backup wife for the Kohen Gadol. Now, the Gemara really ultimately rejects that notion. We saw that. The Mishnah does, actually, right? It says that, this was a singular opinion of Rabbi Yehuda that you should have sort of have this backup wife in case his first wife dies. And, you know, the Gemara, the Mishnah ultimately says, well, you know, ain't sof. But what it does do is it sort of tries to play itself out, right? It tries to say like, okay, but let's say, you know, so first it shares a little bit of a back and forth between Rabbanan and Rabbi Yehuda, which each one would say to each other. But then it says like, okay, let's say you do want to have the backup wife, right? The second wife. You know, and then it goes through all these permutations of he can't be married, the Kohen Gadol, to two wives at the same time, right? Because it says, Ubeto, it's his house, and it can't be two houses. And so then it creates all these different permutations of, well, what if he did this with a conditional divorce? And what would the conditional divorce look like? And some of the permutations end up that he's still married to two women. And some of the permutations end up, well, no, he's actually not married to two women. He's not married to anybody because of the way he set up the conditional divorce. Um, whenever I see this type of discussion, you know, I'm, those of you who have been learning with us, you know, for well over a year now, um, I always call these the boundary pushing discussions, right? Uh, I'm not sure that this is so much a discussion about the Cohen Gadol and getting a, 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 you know, a backup wife, because ultimately the Gemara really, the mission of the Gemara really reject that as, and, as needing to do it all. But I think they're using this more as an opportunity to discuss some of the limitations of what does it mean to have a conditional divorce. Um, and I think also when you read this, it's very glaring because, look, certainly in our modern day, there's so many issues around Agunod and how gets are given. And there's something like a little bit like blasé about this stuff, like, oh, we'll just give a conditional divorce and you'll sort of see what happens. And I think it does emphasize a little bit here to our modern learner sort of the power that the man does have, right? It's like sort of at his whim to decide, you know, how, when, and what the conditions are going to be. Um, but again, I think this is really sort of an intellectual exercise of what's going on. And the last comment I would make, and then I know, Anne, you're going to read a little bit inside, is I really, you know, thought it was fascinating how they linked it up to Yibum at the end, right? The idea that with Yibum, it also needs to be a bite. It needs to be a singular bite. And what would you do in a case of Yibum where somebody had two wives and dies? Now, again, just to explain to everybody what Yibum is again, right? If somebody dies without children, his brother uh, is, uh, you know, would marry. Today, we don't do this. We do the Chalitza part. But his brother would marry the wife uh, so that they would have a child together that would sort of then be in the name of that of that first husband, in the name of his brother, who had passed away so that name would stay. Uh, now we do Chalitza, which is a process by which uh, sort of the brother rejects the wife. Um, and we'll talk about this uh, at another time. I won't get into all of those details. Um, but again, sort of this idea of big toe. And I think you're- already... I, think, I think you meant where the wife rejects the brother. Sorry, excuse me. Yes, I meant the wife rejects the brother. Thank you. Um, but also I think on the staff is like, yes, polygamy is allowed at this time. But it's interesting to see this emphasis on the Beitou. Like, they're not coming out and saying polygamy is not okay, but they kind of like the idea that one person has one one wife, right? It's like, 
they're not liking this idea of the possibility of two wives because that really would be the easy answer. Just let the Kohen Gadol have two wives. But you see from that and the example with Yibam and some of the learning they do around, they want to keep it to one wife, which I thought was interesting because this is when polygamy was still allowed. You know, polygamy became a sort around the year, and you may correct me on this year, uh, a thousand with, you know, one of the Takanot of Rabbeinu Gershom. Again, that's a whole other discussion. <laughs> um, you know, there were certain Takanot that were enacted, and one of them was outlawing polygamy, but certainly in times of the mission of In, Kumar, in Ashkenaz. It was accepted right, in, in Ashkenaz. Ashkenaz. Thank you. In Ashkenaz. That's an important point. It was allowed, but do you hear what I'm saying, Anne? Like, you get this vibe here. So I just, right. So I want to. So I, I agree with you. I think they're not into the polygamy possibility at all, um, even temporarily. They spent a lot of time addressing the, you know, to make sure that that couldn't happen, even, you know, a great, to a great effort, to meaning a great effort in argumentation to make sure that it couldn't happen. I want to also just address the question of the boundary pushing here. You know, to what extent are they blasé about conditional divorce? I, I think that we need to remember that for all that they take these halachot so seriously, and they're talking about what would happen in the case of a, of the Beit Hamikdash if this would happen, they are no longer talking about it in a practical way, right? The Beit Hamikdash conversation is theoretical for the members of Chazal who are having this conversation. Not that the halacha is theoretical, meaning they're not theorizing; they're assessing something practically. But that practical thing is not actually going to take place, you know, unless unless maybe they think, you know, maybe Mashiach would have come by, she would have been built and they would be all ready to go. But we have the vantage of, you know, 2000 years of hindsight and we know that that didn't happen. So I think that there's something kind of important to to recognize that on the one hand, they're fleshing out all the possible cases. And on the other hand, the, I'm not sure that they're really quite fans of conditional divorce either. Um, although they are certainly much more willing to entertain the idea and talk about the idea and use the idea than people nowadays, where the idea of a conditional divorce seems to give everybody hives. Um, I, or at least it, I don't think they like it. I think that's some of the point here is like, look how difficult conditional divorce is. It doesn't really I think that, work. Right. I think that's fair. And I think that's, I think that Gemara's like this might be part of why people today, you know, really, really shy away from this kind of uh, solution or not or not solution. I do, I do want to read just a little bit inside. Um, just I'm not going to go through all the cases uh, as you're Dana, as you say, they're a little bit head spinning, not because the logic doesn't work, but because it takes a lot of like steps. So, you know, you use all your fingers to keep everybody straight to make sure that you figured out which wife is, hap you know, what's happening to which wife and where and what's a retroactive, you know, if you die, then we were divorced. That's a really, you know, kind of a head spinning, spinning concept to begin with. Right. But that is one of the possibilities that the divorce would say in the event that you die on Yom Kippur, then we will have been divorced from before so that I would have only been married to the one wife going into Yom Kippur. Um, OK, so I'm um, somewhere. Um, I don't know. Somewhere in the middle of Ahmed Alf, maybe towards the end of Ahmed Alf. Um, <clears throat> so we have this case, um, you know, OK, we say here, Ella de Amar La, the Kohen Gadol says, to her, to those women, almenat shetamut, meaning achatnikam, either either one of them, this bill of divorce would be on the condition that one of you dies. Not that the first one dies, not that the specific one dies, but that one of you dies. It's a conditional divorce, you know, pending one of their deaths. Right? If this one dies and that one's alive, 
when this one dies and that one's alive, then that's the one he would have been married to. And then what happens, and this year, Dana, is exactly what you pointed out, what happens if neither of them dies? And let's recognize that the likelihood would have been that neither of them would have died. And then he has two, quote, houses, meaning two wives at a time when he's supposed to only have one. And the Gemara continues, is this document, is that even a valid kind of divorce? And here's the question on conditional divorce. So Rava's example, and these are, you know, it's multiple cases like this in Masacha Gitin, 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 right? If a man says to his wife, you know, here's your divorce on condition, meaning this bill of divorce will only work on the condition that you never drink wine throughout my life or your life, meaning I'm going to give you this get on the condition that you never, ever, ever drink wine again. So the Gemara says, Rava says, that's not kritu, that's not severance, that's not uh, a legitimate divorce between them, right? Because <laughs> that, frankly, that's not kritu, that's not severing the bond between them because she's still tied to his life because of you know the degree to which she can't drink wine while he's alive. Um, and so it's an interesting um care, attention paid to what exactly is the condition of the conditional divorce? Does it invalidate the very phenomenon of the divorce? And then, so the Gemara continues with this point, but if you did say to your wife, this is your divorce on condition that you don't drink wine all during the days of so-and-so's life, you know, the president, the Kohen Gadol, Fred from down the block, those that's fine because it's not contingent. I mean, it counts as severance. It counts as kritut because it's not contingent on the life of the husband who is supposed to be the former husband. It's a third party, and so then the condition still works. So, again, I think I think you're Dana. I think you're right. I think there's like they're kind of dragging their feet into this idea of ways to modify a basic, you know, basic setup of the divorce, and then we come back to the coin gadol. This is your bill of divorce on the condition that your counterpart, meaning that the other wife, does not die. So let's think about this, right? You will be divorced as long as she is alive. Meaning, if she, and otherwise they would not be divorced because he would be married to her. That's exactly the goal. Right? Meaning if she does die, then they will be married, the, the one who receives this conditional divorce. So what happens if the counterpart, if the, if the first wife dies in the middle of Yom Kippur? Right? So now what happens? You know, does that retroactively make this divorce kick in? Because it's all supposed to be on the same day. Right, it doesn't. It's not minute by minute. It's not hour by hour. So now, what happens is there a time of that of that Yom Kippur when it happens to be that he had both wives, no wives. How does it work? And again, I feel like this is this is exactly the head spinning situation where at the end of this little case it says Vidilma Maita So then you know, then the counterpart dies. The bill of divorce kicks in. So the first wife is dead. The second wife is retroactively divorced because the, the divorce kicked in prior to the death of the second one. 
and now he has no wife. Meaning, I, so, so you're then I'm with you on the push on the boundary question because I feel like let's explore all these cases when it, at the end of the day, sure, any one of them is truly possible because that's the way the math works. But in terms of what's likely, a, how do we fix this for a Kohen Gadol? Um, you know, again, I'm not sure. I don't know if we know of any case where this was necessary. Yeah, I agree. And I get, I, it's just boundary pushing. Um, I just want to point out one last thing at the bottom here. Um, they go through the case of Tana Rabbanan, Kohen Gadol Makriv One, the Eno Ochel. Um, that a coin gadol, let's say he's an one, right? Because they're talking about what happens if one of his wives die. So here we're talking about, okay, let's say a coin gadol has somebody in his family who dies um, and he becomes an one, uh, right? Which is that period of time before the body's actually buried. Um, he can be makri, he can bring a, a, a korban, but he's not allowed to eat from it. Um, and then they get into discussion for how long is that, kolayom, and what is kolayom? But uh, one of the themes I've mentioned before that I wanted to pay attention to is sort of, you know, who is the Kohen Gadol serving? And I think this example of the owning is very interesting. He can be makriv, right? Because even though we say normally when you're an owning, you can't do mitzvot, he's not doing a mitzvah for himself, right? He is doing something that is really on behalf of Klal Yisrael, that's really on behalf of the Jewish people to continue that connection between the Jewish people and God. But yet, what can't he do? Because that would be personal benefit is he's not allowed to eat it. And I think this particular halakha shows exactly that tension about the Kohen Gadol or about Kohanim in general and what their role is. Well, I just want to mention, and it's, you know, from the Parsha that we read just today, right? Achremot um, begins with Achremot Shnei Aharon. We have an example of a Kohen Gadol being an Onin. Many of all the hypothetical cases this is one that is very clearly depicted in the Torah and the role of what is Aaron supposed to do as a Kohen. He can't act as in full mourning, but he also doesn't quite do everything. Like he, right, he rejects the idea that he's supposed to bring a chatat and that they, because of the terms of being an Onin. I feel like, I feel like it's not incidental that this Gemara here, when it talks about Aninut, it, it knows what it's doing. It doesn't need to probe all the all the same hypotheticals, at least not here. Maybe maybe we'll catch that later in the in the Gemara in the Masachet. But it seems to me that this is a simpler case because it was so prominent and so known. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Rabbi Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this DAP on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn. Thank you.